thanksgiving as well that we're able to sing his praise and exalt his name. He's certainly worthy. And great is the Lord and worthy to be praised. You know, we, um, we're looking forward to our 130th church anniversary on October 17th. And our theme, and you may have already seen it in the bulletin in the newsletter, is generation to generation. We've even seen a kind of a generational shift in our church in recent years. And so uh, this morning, uh, we're going to start a series as we prepare for the 130th uh, series entitled Generations. And we are getting ready for our 130th uh, anniversary. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 21 is our theme verse. And it says this, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, the question this morning is, will the church survive from generation to generation? The, the question is, what will happen to the church in the upcoming generations? Is this a generational thing that's taking place? And before I go any further, I want to stop before I continue, but you may have noticed that we've been taking some pictures around the church lately, getting ready for the 130th anniversary. And so September 12th, we're going to be taking some more pictures, and we're going to be taking pictures of our Connect group, so I hope that you will be here uh, so that you can be part of that. We want to make sure that's a special day. But when I started thinking about the church, will the church be ready and will the church be in existence from generation to generation? How will the church fare? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I look at even in the church in America, I've seen more political, uh, really, pressure put on the church in the last few years than I've ever seen in my life. I mean, we've been going through this COVID epidemic, and you might remember that our government at one, a government at one time said that bars and liquor stores were considered essential while churches were supposed to close down. Then I think about the social pressure that's being put on churches. I mean, we are being pressured into capitulating to the social issues of our day, like the LGBTQ and whatever letters you add. There's just pressure to accept, what is, uh, to accept as normal what God has says is an abomination. The church is being pressured. The church is being persecuted. But you know, the church has always faced opposition. The church has always faced obstacles and persecution. There's nothing new about that particular thing. But it really is a wonder that the church has survived for 2,000 years under the scrutiny, the pressure, and the persecution that it's faced in those 2,000 years. You know, I think about wonders. Some of you might be familiar, familiar with the seven ancient wonders of the world. Can you name them? I wouldn't be able to name them unless I looked them up, but there are seven ancient wonders of the world, and these are the ancient wonders. Number one, the Great Pyramid of Giza. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon. The Statue of Zeus at Olympia in Greece. The Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. The Mausoleum of Halicarnassus in Egypt. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but close enough for me. The Colosseum the of Rhodes and the Lighthouse of Alexandria. These are the seven ancient wonders of the world. Did you know if you wanted to go visit one of those seven ancient wonders of the world, you'd only be able to go visit one? Because all of the others have already been destroyed. Only the pyramid at Giza is still standing. The others have been destroyed. Only one remains. But when I start thinking about the, really the greatest wonder of the world, it's the church. The church really is the greatest wonder of the world. I mean, you got to think about it. Every generation has tried to exterminate the church. The Roman emperors tried to eliminate the church in their day. And today, all those emperors are dead and buried, but the church is alive. 
The church remains. You know, I think about the communists and how they tried to eliminate the church. The communists in Russia, the communists in China, the communists in Germany, the communists in Cuba. And the communism has never been able to eliminate the church. The church is still alive. You know, I think about the, uh, a man named Saul in the book of Acts who wanted to destroy the church. And, the, and the, the, the man who wanted to destroy the church became a member of the church. Saul became the Apostle Paul and wrote most of the New Testament. I think maybe he thought like a lot of people do, if you can't beat them, join them. And so he did. He joined them. And the church really is the greatest wonder of the world. And this morning I want us to consider what it takes for a church to last forever. What does it take for the, the church to last Forever, from generation to generation. So if you've got your Bibles, and I know you do, would you turn into your Bibles to Matthew 16? Turn on your tablet to Matthew 16, verse 13. I want to read there. The very first time the church is ever mentioned in Scripture is in Matthew chapter 16. The very first time Jesus talks about the church is here in Matthew 16. And He gives us some, some understanding and insight about the church. Let's look here in Matthew 16, verse 13. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, Well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not like one of these uh, pagan deities. God is the living God, the Son of the living God. In verse 17, Jesus answered and said to them, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Barjona just means son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Verse 19 says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now there are some things I want you to learn about the church that lasts forever. Number one, there, there must be a confession, the confession of the church. There must be a confession if you want to be a part of the forever church. In Matthew 16, the Bible talks about Jesus going to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was located in Israel in the very northern part of Israel. It's called Caesarea Philippi for a reason. Herod the Great had a son named Philip. And he put Philip in charge of this particular area. And he wanted to honor Caesar, so he called it Caesarea. He also wanted to honor another man. And so he named it Philippi. So Caesarea Philippi, so there was Jesus taking his disciples to this northern part of Israel. Now this is the only time we know that Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi. The only time we have a record of him even being there. But Jesus carried his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, maybe on a little hiatus. Maybe they were look, looking for a spiritual retreat. They had been, in the, they had been in, the, in the daily grind of things and in the temple where there's a lot of pressure. So Jesus took his disciples and they went to this remote place out in Caesarea Philippi. To spend some time with his disciples. Well, this event was very important because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all included it in their Gospels. So what happened there is of utmost importance. And so these disciples had been with Jesus. Now I want you to keep in mind, they had been with Jesus nearly every day for about three years. 
They had seen all of his miracles. They had seen him raise the dead. They had seen him cast out demons. They had seen Jesus take a lame man and give his legs back. They had seen him give sight to the blind. They had seen him cure the incurable, de- uh, the dreaded disease of leprosy. They saw it all. They saw him calm the storm one day, speak to the storm, and it stopped. They had seen all these miracles. You know, they had, they had heard all of Jesus' sermons. They listened to them. They were there with Jesus when he taught in the synagogues. They were there with Jesus whenever the, the religious leaders and, and all the folks came to Jesus asking these tough questions. And they heard Jesus field every one of those difficult questions. They knew his responses. They were there. They had seen it. And so Jesus has his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. And he, he decides he wants to give them what we would call a comprehensive exam. You know, whenever I was working on my doctorate, which is still pending, by the way, um, but when I was working on my doctorate, I had to take two years of coursework where we did research, we taught classes, and, and uh, we were part of seminars for two years. And at the end of those two years, they gave us a comprehensive exam. Everything that I had read, everything that I'd heard, everything that I taught was going to be cons- a part of this comprehensive exam. And on this exam, we had ten questions, only ten And you had one hour for each question. It was a 10-hour comprehensive exam. It was a very intensive comprehensive. Well, Jesus was giving his disciples a comprehensive exam. It only had two questions. Just two. You know, I was thinking about giving a comprehensive exam of all of my sermons over the last few years. Just so we can know where we are, right? I mean, I know all of you got that, no problem. But Jesus gave his disciples... A comprehensive exam with two questions. Number one, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Who am I? And the disciples said, well, some people say you're like a good preacher, like John the Baptist. Well, that's kind of a compliment, but it was wrong. That's not who Jesus was. Some people say, hey, you're like Elijah, the great man like Elijah. And Jesus is greater than Elijah. And that may have been a compliment in some regards, but it was really beneath Jesus. Some people said, well, you know, you're like a prophet like Jeremiah. And that's like strike three. Wrong again. Wrong again. And so, I think about Jesus. Any of us might have been flattered to be called John the Baptist or Elijah or somebody like Jeremiah the prophet. We might be honored by that. But it was really beneath Jesus. Because that's not who he was. He was more than all those things. Jesus was God in the flesh. You know, people try to take away from Jesus by saying, well, you know, he was a good man. He was a moral man, but he wasn't really God. They'll say things like, well, he was a great teacher, but he really wasn't God. He, he shaped the world for the better, but he really wasn't God. And so they try to take away from who Jesus really was. But let me just say this. Jesus cannot be a good teacher and a good man if he lied about who he was. Now, some people say, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, I won't give you a verse to write down. John 10, 30. In John 10, 30, Jesus said this, I and my Father are one. You might remember that verse. Well, let me tell you why that was so important. If you go back and continue to read just a few verses later, you will realize why the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. And they wanted to kill Jesus. Why? When John 10, 33, this is what it says. For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself... God. So they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to be God. 
And let me just say, you cannot be a good teacher. You cannot be a, a great moral leader if you're not honest about your identity. And Jesus claimed to be God. I like the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said he is either a liar or he, he is Lord. He cannot be both. And Jesus was God in the flesh. But then Jesus asked them the most important question. And this is a question that you have to answer. This is a question that I have to answer. And Jesus said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, Where you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, That's right, Peter. You get an A for today, but don't get the big head because you didn't just discover that on your own. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. It's not by your intellect. It's not by your education. It's by revelation. The Father revealed it to Peter. He gave him the answer. Do you know that the Father still reveals that Jesus is the Son of the living God today? He still does that. You know how He does it? He does it through His Word. In John chapter 20, verse 31, it says this, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. That's why the Scriptures were written, so that you would believe that He is the Christ, that He's the Son of the living God. God is not a concealing God. He doesn't, he's not trying to hide Himself from you. God is a revealing God. He wants you to know Him. He doesn't just want you to know the right answer to the question. He's not just prepping you to, to give the right answer. He wants you to know Him. He's revealing Himself to you so that you can know Him in the power of His resurrection. He wants you to know Him so that you can have salvation in His name. And so, He's not trying to just give you the right answer. Did you know that the demons in hell know the right answer to that question? The Bible says in Luke 4.41 that the demons also came out of many crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. They know the right answer. But they've never committed themselves to Christ. They don't have a personal faith. The demons know the right answer. But Peter's confession is a confession of faith. It's a personal confession of faith. And let me just give you two things real quick. If you want to be part of a church that lasts forever, number one, you have to have a profession of faith. You have to have a confession of faith that is personal. A personal confession of faith. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? That's the question. It's not what your mama says about Jesus. It's not what your daddy says about Jesus. It's not what your granddaddy says about Jesus. It's not what your grandmother says about Jesus. It's what you say about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is He? That's the question. Your confession of faith must be your own personal profession of faith. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul said, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess, it's a personal confession. It's a personal faith. If you want to be a member of a church that lasts forever, you must have a personal confession that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I'm not talking about just being a member of First Baptist. I mean, I want you to be a member of First Baptist. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being a member of the church of Christ, God's universal church. You know, lots of people have their name on a church roll, but they don't have their name on heaven's roll. They know a lot about God, but they don't know Him. You know, I don't know if you've ever, ever heard this, but you know, the, the pastor of the largest church in America said in an interview on Larry King Live some years ago, he said, you know, I can't say that an atheist will go to hell. 
He said, I can't say that. And he, said, he went on to say, he said, to me, it's not my business to say, you know, this one's going to be saved and that one isn't going to be saved. I just say, here's what the Bible teaches and I'm going to put my faith in Christ. He said, I just, don't, he said, I just think it's wrong when you say uh, you're not going and you're not going and you're not going. Well, you know, we don't get to say who's going. God has already told us who's going. He said in, in John chapter 8, verse 24, he said, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, I didn't say that. Jesus said that. Jesus said, He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes through the Father but through Him. If you reject Him, then you reject your salvation. You must have a public confession also. It needs to be a personal confession, but also a public confession. Now, your confession must be personal, but your confession is also public. Do you know one reason why we baptize people by immersion? It's because it gives people an opportunity to make a public profession, a public statement that they identify with Christ. You know, when you go down in that watery grave, you're saying, I am buried with Christ. When you come out of that baptismal pool, you say, I'm raised to new life in Christ. I identify with Christ. So that's what the testimony that you're giving to the world. It's a public confession that you are a follower of Christ. Now, some people say, well, are you knocking those churches that, you know, do baptism like infant baptism? Well, I'm not trying to be critical of any church, but I'm just saying that an infant cannot make a public confession. An infant cannot make a public confession. Uh, Christening doesn't really identify you with Christ because an infant can't really publicly profess their faith in Christ. But when you're baptized by immersion, it's a public statement to the world. I'm a follower of Christ. I believe Jesus died for my sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And I put my faith and my trust in that. And so I'm following Jesus in baptism. You know, Jesus was baptized. Jesus didn't have to be baptized. I mean, he didn't need to repent of anything. He, didn't, he wasn't baptized because he needed to, be, to repent. He was baptized to set the example for us that we could follow in his steps and we could identify with him. You know, someone told me recently about a church where the back of their sanctuary faced a busy street. And so what they did was, instead of just blocking that, the back of their building, they decided where their baptismal is, they made it all glass. And so every time they did a baptismal, everybody who rode by on that street could witness the baptism. Because it was a public testimony to the world that that person is a follower of Christ. And so they were declaring to the world, I have identified with Christ. It was a public confession. But you know, some people are kind of embarrassed about being baptized. They're just, they, they're, maybe they're ashamed of Christ. I don't know, but I want to give you two verses and you need to write these down. Matthew 10, says this, Jesus said, but whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now that's a serious charge. You know what Jesus says in Matthew, I mean, excuse me, Mark 8, 38. In Mark 8, 38, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let me ask you, have you confessed Christ publicly? Are you ashamed of Christ? Have you publicly proclaimed your allegiance to Christ? There, there must be a personal confession, but also there's a a public confession. So there's the confession of the church, but there's also the construction of the church. Look at verse 18. And so, Jesus says, I say to you that you are Peter, 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now Jesus said, I will build my church. Two just quick observations. Jesus is building the church. We're not building the church. He builds his church. This is not my church. It's not your church. This is his church. He's the one who bled for it, died for it, was buried, rose again on the third day, and one day he's coming back for his church. This is his church. He, it belongs to him. And I want you to notice how Jesus builds a church that lasts forever. The first thing you need before you build any construction, any building, is you need a base. You need a foundation. And so the Bible says that there needs to be a foundation for the church. And look at what Jesus said. Jesus said to Simon, you are Peter. The name for Peter, by the way, the Greek word is Petros. P-E-T-R-O-S, Petros. It means rock. And so Jesus said to Peter, you are a rock. But what he means by that, that word means that like you're a chip off the old block. You're kind of a chip off the bigger block. Are you okay with that? You're a smaller piece of the bigger whole. And so you're just a chip off the, the block. Now some people think that the church was built on Peter. And that the rock in which the church built was Peter. But can you imagine a church built on the, on, on the Apostle Peter? Can you imagine that? I mean, earlier this summer, you may remember on June 24th, the Champlain Towers uh, south in Surfside, Florida collapsed. But it had a, 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 a poor foundation. Researchers discovered, even back in the 1990s, that that foundation was sinking two millimeters per year for a while. It had a faulty foundation. As a result, that building collapsed. No matter how impressive it was, no matter how wonderful it looked on the outside, it collapsed because it had a shaky foundation. Well, did you realize, or do you realize how faulty a foundation the church would be if it were built on Peter? I mean, if you just read a few verses down in Matthew 16, verse 23, Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. He said, You're not mindful of the things of God, you're mindful of the things of men. So Peter went from a hundred to a zero. In just one moment, can you imagine how faulty the church would be if it were built on the Apostle Peter? The church isn't built on Peter. Some people believe that Peter was the first pope, that, that he was the first pastor of Rome, the church in Rome. And, and since that was the case, he was the first pope of Rome. And since that time, every pope that has ever existed follows the succession of Peter all the way back to him, called apostolic succession. That's what some people believe. But we don't look to a pope as the foundation. That would be a faulty foundation. You know, if you build a church, any church around a preacher, do you know that's a faulty foundation? If you build any church around a preacher, that is a faulty foundation. If you build the church around a praise band or a worship team or worship, that will be a faulty foundation. If you build the church around the people of the church, that will be a faulty foundation. The church is built on Christ and Christ alone. He is the foundation. It is built on the, in the person of Christ. Now, the church is not built on Peter, the Petros. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. The word that he used for rock there was not Petros. It was Petra, P-E-T-R-A. What does that mean? It means like, like the whole mountain. In other words, it means like stone mountain. So he was referring to Peter like a piece of the rock of stone mountain. But when he talked about the church, he talked about the whole stone mountain. And so he says, I am going to build my church on the whole stone mountain. And Peter, you're just a piece of the block. You're just a chip off of that mountain. I am the whole thing. And the foundation of the church is Christ. And if you want a church that lasts forever, that foundation has to last forever. It has to be an eternal foundation if the church is going to last forever. 
Now, we are part of an eternal church because the church is built on an eternal foundation. Now, I know some of you right now think, well, I'm just not convinced that that's true. But I want you to think about 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. It says this, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. No other foundation can anyone lay that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. The church is built on the foundation of Christ. Now, if the church is going to be an eternal church, it must be built on an eternal foundation. And Jesus is the eternal foundation. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first. He is the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is eternal. But if Jesus is the base, what does Jesus use to build his church? Well, Jesus builds his church like we build our buildings out of bricks and stones, right? He builds them out of bricks and stones. Now, I'm not talking about a physical building. I'm not talking about physical bricks. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says this. You also, as living stones, that's you and me, are being built up to a spiritual house, a heavenly priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. You are the living stones that Jesus uses to build his church. You know, the Greek word for church in this passage is ekklesia. It means the called out ones. It means that God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are the called out ones. We are the stones that Jesus uses to build his church. And so when I think about Mike, Mike, Mike's a stone, and Elizabeth's a stone, and Chris is a stone, and you're a stone, and I'm a stone, and, and God has stones all over this globe that he uses to build his church. We are stones. He has stones from China. I know you think everything comes from China, but really, he does have stones from China. He has stones from Russia, from Israel, from Cuba, from America, from Africa, from Afghanistan. Jesus has stones from all over the world that he uses to build his church. And we're all just kind of chips off the old block. We're chips off that stone mountain that God uses to build his church. You know, when we, when we were in Israel, uh, we went to the Temple Mount that King Herod built in about 40 B.C., 40 years before Christ, King Herod built this Temple Mount. Well, the Western Wall is still standing to this day. And we were able to go to the Western Wall. And we were able to see these big, massive stones that they carved out of stone. And they made them fit perfectly. And then they just stacked them on that foundation. And they still remain to this day. They were, they were big stones. They were big rocks, but they were, not, they were just a small part of the whole. But, you know, I started thinking about, have you ever thought about how Jesus takes an ordinary rock like me? He takes an ordinary rock like you, and he saves it. He begins to shape it and chisel it and form it so that it fits perfectly in his church, right where he wants you to be. God forms you to fit exactly where he wants you to be in his church. He's building his church, and he's using you to do it. And you are his living stones. He's shaping you to fit where he wants you to be. Now, if, 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 the, if the base is Jesus and, and we're the bricks, then what's the bond that holds us together? What, what keeps us together? You know, just one block, that's not very much of, that's not much of an impressive building, is it? Not one stone. It takes a lot of stones to make an impressive building. You can take a lot of bricks, a lot of stones, and build some enormous things, but you can't do it with one block. With one block. It takes all of us. It takes a lot of stones. It's easier to tear down one stone than it is a bunch of them. 
But when you have a large group of stones all bound together, it fortifies the church. And they become an enormous force. Now, Jesus is the base. We're the bricks. What's the bond that holds us together? Now, I'm not a contractor. Mike's a contractor. I'm not a contractor. I'm not a builder. But I have, I have served on some building projects. In fact, Bully Chapel at Camp Pine Hill, I helped work on that. And I remember we were making the mortar for the bricks. I didn't lay bricks because I couldn't do that, but I could do what other things they told me to do. And we would take water and some, some concrete mix and some sand, and we'd mix it all together, and it would begin to form that, that bond between those bricks that hold them all together. And that was the mortar. And I started thinking about the mortar that God uses to bind us together. And I thought, you know what he did? He took his blood. He took his Holy Spirit. He took his love. He just mixed them all together. And he used that as the mortar that holds his church together. Now think about it. A church that lasts forever is held together by the blood of Christ. You ever thought about that? God takes all of us from different backgrounds from different economic backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, different walks of life, different social backgrounds, and he puts us all together under the blood of Christ. He unites us under his blood. It doesn't matter what your background is. When you come to Christ, we all come the same way. The ground really is level at the foot of the cross. We're held together by the blood of Christ, but we're also held together by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the church is a, is a supernatural phenomenon. And the Holy Spirit is what holds us together. It's, a, it's not a social club. It's a supernatural institution. You know, I think about the church has survived all of its flaws, all of its imperfections, all of its selfishness, all of its persecutions, all of its neglect. It has done so because of the power of the Holy Spirit. The church is held together by the Spirit of God lasts forever. But I'm just going to give you this last thought, and I'm just going to make it in a, as a passing comment. We'll deal with it later. But God... Bonds us together by love. Our love for him and our love for each other. The Bible says that they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. God binds us together by his spirit, by his blood, and by his love. So there's the confession of the church. There's also the construction of the church. I want to give you the continuation of the church. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not, shall not prevail against it. You know, when we were in Caesarea Philippi last year, we went to the, to the there was a temple there, to the god of Pan, P-A-N, Pan. And this particular temple, uh, the god Pan, he was kind of a mean god that people believed. And what they believed was, if you made him mad, or if he got upset with you, or you offended him, well, he would cause all kinds of, kinds of panic and pandemonium. He was the god of panic. God of pandemonium, that's what he did. Well, the, the entrance to that particular temple, the gate to that temple, was called the gate of Hades. The gates of Hades. Now, I don't know for sure, but it just makes me wonder, whenever Jesus was talking to his disciples, and there was that gate of Hades sitting right there in the, in the shadow of his conversation, I wonder when he said the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, I wonder if he was saying that the demonic forces will never prevail against my church. They will never be effective against my church. My church will prevail no matter what demonic force comes against it. And by the way, there are demonic forces coming against the church and have always come against the church. You know, this world is really under the sway. We're talking about this morning. This world is under the sway of Satan. This, this, this world is under the delusion that Satan brings. Would you agree with that? Let me give you an example. I read just, just, just this past week 
that the chaplains at the Harvard University elected an atheist to be the president of the Harvard chaplains. The newly elected president for the Harvard chaplains is an atheist. They elected him to represent them. And this is what he says. He said, we don't look to God for answers. We look to people for answers. Do you not believe that this world is under the sway of Satan and his influence? That you would elect the atheist to represent your chaplains? Now, this world has always been under the sway of the demonic forces, and the church has always been there as a light to stand its ground against the church. Satan has really unleashed all of his attack on the church, but he's been unsuccessful. Unsuccessful. The church still stands. Let me just say this. First Baptist Church one day may not be here. It may not stand forever. This particular building may not be here in years to come. I don't know. I mean, I read in Revelation where the Apostle John talked about seven churches in Revelations. And if you were to go and look to visit those churches or go see those churches today, you'd see ruins because none of them are in existence today. Those church buildings are gone. But the church lives on. The church has not died. The church is still thriving. Now, the church might not be thriving in America, but it's, it's thriving in some places. You know where it's thriving? Some of y'all mentioned Afghanistan, but you know that the, the church is thriving in, in Afghanistan? It's struggling in America, but it's thriving in other places. I want to read to you a, a post that I had seen from, um, that somebody sent me from a Baptist association in North Carolina. I just got this this week, and this is what it says re- regarding Afghanistan. It's a lengthy quote, so listen carefully. It says, The sun will come up in Kabul, Afghanistan around 11 p.m. tonight, Eastern Standard Time. And it will be Sunday morning there. They're eight and a half hours ahead of us. There will be thousands of Afghani Christians in church. And they will be there regardless of the events that have transpired since they gathered for their last worship service. That's crazy, you say. The Taliban has taken over their city and they will kill them. Well, they know that. They've known that their entire lives. They've never known anything different. And this Sunday will be no different than any other Sunday in the last centuries in Afghanistan. And yet, the church in Afghanistan is growing faster than any other country other than Iran. What would American Christians do when faced with the same situation? Do you think that... Listen, this is a great question. Do you think maybe the population of Afghanistan has seen the persecution of Christians, seen what the Taliban has done to them, and yet observed the faithfulness of Christians in spite of it all? And do you think that when they see their courage and their willingness to die for Jesus and they realize that, that, that living for Jesus is worth their dying, do you think it inspires them to want to know more about Jesus? See, the Christians will have left their homes on Sunday morning knowing that they're not coming back. They will kiss their families and hug their families praying together and then they'll walk to church together because they would rather die than miss a chance to worship the God they love. Is it... Is it Confusing to you that people will neglect to come to church when they can and have the ability to come and can choose to come. And some people will choose to sleep in on Sunday rather than to worship the God that they say created the earth, the universe, and has saved them from their sin. And they'll choose to neglect the church. Now, Jesus said that this church, his church, will prevail. The church is thriving. It might not be thriving in some places, but it is thriving in other places. And I don't want you to get the idea that the church is kind of hidden behind the doors and they're trying to keep the the demonic realm out. That is not the right picture. That is not the picture that Jesus wants to give you. It's the other way around. Satan has got his people behind their closed doors, behind the gates of Hades, and they're trying to keep the church out. 
And Jesus says, they will not prevail against me. I am going to be effective. They will never be able to, 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 to squelch the church. And let me just say this. If the church in America were fortified like we should be, then America would not look like it does right now. We need to be different. We need to look like Christ. We're supposed to be chips off the block and look like Christ. And if we were united, this world would take note. You know, in Acts chapter 17, uh, when people heard about the Christians coming to that town, you know what they said about the Christians? This is what they said in Acts 17, 6. These who have turned the world upside down have come, have come here too. That ought to be the, the word that people fear. Satan ought to fear when Christians step into the world. Those who have turned the world upside down for Christ have come here too. We are not supposed to be on the defensive. We are on the offensive. We are penetrating the gates of Hades. And so there is a continuation of the church. Let me ask you this question. Are you invading the gates of Hades with the power of God's word? Because Jesus said the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. I'm going to give you one last thing. This, this. The commission of the church. There's a confession. There's a construction. There's a continuation. But there's a commission for the church. In verse 19 it says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now Jesus is saying He's going to give us the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You know, when I think about somebody giving me keys, I start thinking about two things. Responsibility and authority. When I have keys, I have responsibility. But I also have the authority to go in and out. You know, I think about when I was 16 years old, and some of you won't be able to relate to this, and some of you will, but when I was 16 years old, I was at Dillon High School, I was in the 10th grade, they let me get a school bus driver's license. It's scary, right? 16 years old, and they gave me the key to a 60-passenger bus and let me take 60 people to school every day. Now, that's responsibility. I was responsible for taking 60 kids to church. I mean, to a church. I should be doing it to church, too. To school every day. I was a responsibility. But I also had the authority to drive that bus because they had given me the key. And Jesus says, I have given you the key. That means responsibility and that means authority. You have the authority and you have the responsibility. And some people will look at this and say, well, Peter says that Peter has the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You know, all of our jokes always have Peter standing at the pearly gates and saying, you know, you get to go in, you don't get to go in. All of our, all of our jokes kind of, kind of point that way. That's not Jesus' objective. What he's saying is that he has given you, he's given me, he gave the apostle Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whenever the Apostle Peter stood at Pentecost and he preached on, the, on that day in Acts chapter 2 and 3,000 people came to Christ, he opened the kingdom of heaven because he used the key of the gospel. And Jesus has given you the key of the gospel to share with people. You can open the kingdom of heaven for people through the gospel. And then one day, a centurion named Cornelius began to seek some answers about God. And what did Paul, I mean, Peter do? He went there and he shared the gospel. And he opened the keys of heaven to Cornelius and his family because he proclaimed the gospel. And every time you share Christ, every time you share the gospel, you're opening the, the door to heaven. When you share the good news of Christ, you're opening the door of heaven. But when you do not share the gospel, you keep those doors closed. We are to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's given us that mandate, that commission. 
And whenever you teach in your connect group, you're using the key to the kingdom of heaven. When I preach on Sunday morning, I'm using the key that God has given me to the kingdom of heaven. That is the gospel. Let me ask you a question this morning, in kind of closing. Are you using the key to the gospel that He's given you? Are you sharing the gospel with people around you? If I were to ask you this morning, and I'm not, but let me just say I did. Don't raise your hand. But if I said, how many of you invited somebody to be with you in church this morning? Could you raise your hand? If I ask you this morning, how many of you have shared the gospel with somebody this week? Could you raise your hand? God has given us the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And there are some who will never invite somebody, not one single person, to church with them. And God has given us the keys, the commission, the responsibility, and the authority. And so right now, I just want us to to take those keys, and I want us to use them. So would you do something for me? Would you just bow your head just for a moment? I'm going to ask you a few questions, and you're going to get a chance to respond. And maybe this morning you've been sitting in this service and you realize, I have never trusted Christ. I'm not a part of that that church that lasts forever. Your name might be on a church roll, but it might not be on heaven's roll. And maybe this morning you need to come and say, I want to be saved. I want to put my trust in Christ. I want to make a personal confession. Or maybe this morning you've already trusted Christ. You already have a personal confession. You've already confessed faith in Christ, but maybe you've never been baptized. Maybe you've never made it public. And maybe this morning you need to say, hey, I'm willing to stand up for Christ. I'm willing to identify with Christ. I want to be baptized. So in just a few moments, I'm going to give you an opportunity. You can come and respond and say, I want to be baptized. I want to make my profession public. Or maybe this morning you realize you really haven't been taking your responsibility to share the gospel seriously. And you just have been kind of going through life and you're not, you're not really being diligent about that task. Or maybe you're not inviting people to come be a part of what God's doing in your life. And maybe this morning you need to say, God, I confess it. I don't want to turn from it. I want you to give me boldness to share with others, to reach out to somebody. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. How would you respond? Lord, just thank you for your word. I I want to thank you that you have made us a part of uh, the living church. Thank you you've made us a part of an eternal church, a church that lasts forever. I thank you for how you take all the stones in this room and you make us one body in Christ. And so we just celebrate our, our victory in you. But Lord, I realize in this room there's probably people who don't know you as Lord and Savior. Would you just draw them to yourself? I pray for those who, who uh, might be here that have trusted you but really never made it public because maybe they've been a little bit afraid or embarrassed or whatever. I pray you give them boldness to make it public to take a stand. I pray for everyone in this room who knows you as Lord and Savior, that you would give us the heartbeat, the passion, the zeal to want to invite other people into your kingdom. We just thank you for the gospel and how it changes people's lives. Help us to be diligent to share that with others. So as we come to this invitation, we ask you to help us to respond how you lead us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our invitation? Yeah.